Hi, and welcome to Talking Startups at NYU. I'm your host, Giovanni Fume. My guest today is Alyssa Petersell, a licensed master social worker, author of the book Somehow I Am Different, and founder of My Wellbeing. My Wellbeing is essentially a website that helps people find the right therapist for them. The platform works by walking you through a questionnaire and using that info to recommend you one of the many therapists in their network. All of which is designed to really humanize and hopefully streamline the process of finding the right type of help. I'm explaining all this at the top because as you'll hear in the conversation, I forgot to ask her this important question. And that happened because this conversation was sort of different than most that I have on this show. See, I have a profound interest in therapy. I think it's an area that will grow and have important social and economic ramifications in the coming decade. And while usually I have more structured conversation where I make sure to explore all the relevant context and the microphone in my face is a reminder that this is ultimately a performance and I must hit my marks. So in this case, the microphone dissolved and I just kind of started asking questions on a topic that I was curious about. Therefore, if you're a repeat listener, you may find this conversation a little off brand and at times a little bit erratic in its direction. But I still think it's an important and informative discussion. I think it's a really interesting. Alyssa's a super open and candid person, so I wanted to bring it to you nonetheless. In this conversation, we discuss such diverse topics like trauma, personal narratives, how entrepreneurship can affect one's identity, and how we can scale the access to mental health in this country. So I hope you really enjoy it. As always, you can follow me at Giovanni Fume. You can follow the show on SoundCloud and iTunes. And without further ado, here's Alyssa. Hi, Alyssa. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So this is the second time we're doing this. <laughs> um, and I'm actually kind of happy we're doing this a second time because the first time I didn't realize you'd written a book. Oh. And I think actually it's super useful for the conversation that I want to have to use it as a guide through this because for some context on the book that you wrote I mean maybe you maybe you can tell us sure so I used Kickstarter actually to crowdfund for about a year's worth of research in Budapest Hungary where I was interviewing people one-on-one -on -one about identity and specifically in the context of being third generation Holocaust survivors what does Jewish life look like in Budapest today also specifically in a context of not so optimistic political or economic circumstances. And the book is meant to really highlight a lot of creative optimism and entrepreneurship and activism on the ground. So it's an anthology and it goes through 21 different stories about different people who I found very motivating and inspiring. And I hope that others do too. By the way, it's called... Somehow I'm different. Yes. <laughs> you know, I think there were a lot of themes that came up in the book that are actually useful parallels to talk about uh, mental well-being. Yeah. A few of them that come up like just out of my mind is like generational trauma versus individual's trauma. Yeah. Um, you know, victim identity, whether you should move past it, whether you should embrace mm. it, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and, and how that influences the way we see the world. Yeah. So, you know. I suppose maybe we could start with why why did you want to write this book in the context of maybe why you also started my well-being like what is it that you're after? Yeah. 
Well, it's pretty interesting because I worked toward the book before I knew that I'd become a therapist. <laughs> and the book, in a lot in a lot of ways, was a precursor for my interest in becoming a social worker. And I think it's all fueled by essentially on some level like questions that are driving me to better understand myself and to understand my background and things that are influencing me that I carry with me in my DNA. And how much of that do I want to keep and embrace and understand? And how much of it do I want to work past and let go and build skills to overcome? And I think those things, they can be as specific as, you know, for me, I learned about a month into my time in Hungary that I actually am of Hungarian descent. And oh, you didn't know before? I didn't know before. Oh, and wow. that was definitely a really you know, eye-opening, pretty cosmic. It felt very meant to be at the time yeah, and was very bizarre. Yeah. So whether it's specifically, you know, overcoming something as traumatic as the Holocaust or anything like an ethnic or racial trauma that can be carried 100% through generations and can be inherited by ancestors. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one thing is like, I definitely want to talk about these overarching concepts. Yeah. It, it was one of the things, but when you mention, you know, having this cosmic experience, one thing that comes to mind, which I thought a lot about when I was, you know, I was actually listening to your book <laughs> I had it on, in an audio form. But this book is a lot about other people. Mm -hmm. But I guess ultimately, and in a really implicit way, it's about yourself. Yeah. But in the book, like you really don't share that much about what your vision mm -hmm. of Judaism is. And I think it's interesting because you know, knowing you a little bit and having researched you, I feel like you draw a pretty fine line between what is spiritual and what is psychological. Mm. At the beginning of the book, you have a note that says, with this book, I'm asking you to redefine your wholeness, unveil what you are yearning for and commit to its completion. And as someone who grew up with a mother deeply invested in a new age spiritual circles, mm. I would say this is like has some spiritual feel to it so you know what's your relationship with religion yeah I'm glad you asked that because I think it might be off-putting for some people it might be comforting for others to know that my most honest answer is that I don't know yet <laughs> you know I'm in my mid-20s uh, a part of me and, and years ago I would be putting a lot more pressure on myself to know the exact answer that resonated with me 100% that I could put into a bucket. And through my experience with Somehow I'm Different, I learned that there are so many different nuanced iterations of what does religious and what does spiritual mean. I can say I'm not really an observant Jewish adult um, in terms of ritual. Um, but I do identify as someone who's quote-unquote spiritual in the sense that I tend to be meaning-seeking, and I think that that has definitely driven my interest in therapy, both in going to therapy and in facilitating therapy for others. And I think that that, to me, in our you know modern contemporary generation, can be what spiritual means. And I think the definition is different for every person. So I think... I'm not necessarily doing a weekly religious ritual, but I am pretty regularly checking in with myself and trying to differentiate what my gut reaction is to different things, different decisions, different trajectories, career choices or personal choices, that I, I don't just want to be going through the motions for the sake of going through the motions. And I don't 
you know, having a sustainable lifestyle is important, but I'm not necessarily driven by uh, an answer as simple as, well, what provides the biggest return or what's the most financially stable out of clear with entrepreneurship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now that we kind of draw that line between the spiritual and the psychological, you know, once you start leaning into therapy, you really see that it runs the gamut from what what some might consider extremely kooky to extremely clinical. Mm-hmm. How do you approach that balance between mind, body, and spirit for mm-hmm. you? So for me, it's interesting because I identify as someone who is pretty spiritual, and yet my therapy is pretty analytic. It's relational, it's dynamic, but it's not so kooky. What people are looking for is so unique to the person, and I also think that different types of therapy can serve people at different parts of their life. Finding that right fit is really important. You know, part of it is who are you and what having parts of you feel seen and heard by the other person. Sometimes that means that the other person is very similar to you. Other times it means that they're different from you and they can complement and really reflect what you might not be seeing or reflect what they see in you that you might not see in yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of my well-being, we work with clinicians who run the gamut from very concrete, goal-oriented to having a PhD and being much more clinical, much more you know, practicing by the book to being much more new aged mm-hmm. and using a lot more creative approaches and a lot of different things in between. Yeah, I just want to say by kooky, I meant just how it would be perceived by modern <laughs> yeah, society. Totally. Not as a derogatory I'm all a about the kooky, but yeah, I totally understand. Not as a derogatory <laughs> term. I, I spent a lot of time in those circles. So yeah. as I get older mm-hmm. and the type of relationships I have with my friends change a little bit and you know, when you leave college and your friendship circles tend to deepen mm-hmm. um, but shrink, I think I start to see that in almost anyone, I don't know if this is a symptom of modern society. I mean, we do have record high numbers of people reporting depression and anxiety, mm-hmm. but that might just be that we have better measurement mm-hmm. or diagnostical tools. I don't know. But it seems like a lot of people are unhappy in some way. So how do you describe the path to mental well-being? What is someone working towards? Mm. I think that too is so hard to say a blanket statement because I think for some people, they might be wrestling with eating patterns or wrestling with insomnia or headaches and they want a very concrete step-by-step action plan on how to create a routine and what are what's the one, two, three to overcome that. Whereas other people, it's way more nuanced and it's this feeling gnawing internally of this just something is off and they can't exactly say, you know, I'm sleeping fine, I exercise, I'm going to work, I make enough, my friends are fine, but some that something's missing. And I think with that, it's it's so much unpacking and working in a partnership to figure out what is that because generally the person doesn't have the language to really understand or pinpoint what that is and it's working with this professional who in a really unique way is purely there to listen to you and to help you figure it out whereas you know you can talk about it with friends or loved ones but a lot of times they have their own narrative circling in their mind justifiably and understandably but with a therapist, it's like this person is there for you 
and they're trained to hear patterns and to reflect patterns to you and to help you distill and just help you answer that question for yourself. Like, what are you working toward? What is it that is missing and that you want to build? Yeah, I suppose the reason I ask this is because a lot of the people, I suppose I could speak only for my friends, but like the people who have opened up the most to me and carry the most darkness, mm -hmm. not in a negative way, just yeah. that's the best way I can describe the feeling they carry around with themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, the deeper that darkness, the more terminal it seems. Mm -hmm. And I suppose in some ways, I guess I was asking a closed question because I was kind of hoping, you know, we could go in a specific <laughs> direction with this. But for those people who might be listening, who, you know, this feels terminal mm. or, or it feels like this is a part of them. How would you describe to them the journey, what the potential they can work toward? Like mm -hmm. Maybe we can talk about it in practical terms. You know, when mm -hmm. you've witnessed people go through a whole therapy and, and have come out of it somehow successfully. Yeah. What, what has changed? Yeah. Well, I can speak about myself. Yeah, please. Um, which I identify more as the person who, you know, everything's pretty good. But there, I, what brought me to therapy was just this underlying yearning, like this like gnawing, something needing, questioning. And I think for me, historically, chronically, I was trying to fit myself into a certain mold that may or may not have actually been an authentic match to who I was. So there- what, what, what was that mold? Well, I think, you know, it's our culture encourages this perfect person who has all the friends, who's making all the money. They're simultaneously making all the money, but also helping the world, doing all the best things for the world. And they're the funniest and chic as they don't get upset about anything. Strally, who's stressed? Yeah. So I think, you know, there were days when I would have a full range of emotions like any human. And on the days that I would have, you know, stress or sadness or disappointment or shame, which is so common and the most frequently swept under the rug, it feels like, oh, I can't be feeling that. There has to be something wrong. Like that that's not me. I'm I'm I have it all together. So part of my work is actually accepting that that range of emotions is normal and to be anticipated. And rather than resist and when you put up the front and start resisting those feelings, they accumulate and they build and they start to feel like the enemy. And it's it's similar in a lot of mindfulness and meditation language, which is when you actually open the door to those feelings. What's interesting is they don't feel good. You know, the goal is not necessarily to feel 100% amazing. You're having the best day 24-7. But it's that when you go through those waves that are less comfortable, you can anticipate hey, it's normal. There may be some reasoning behind it or some meaning, and it will pass. And you can better weather what's going on and you can better understand who are you and what do you want to need as a unique individual as opposed to trying to refit yourself into this mold of what you think you're supposed to be. Yeah. Actually, last summer I spent a month in a Buddhist monastery mm -hmm. in Korea for fun. Well, for fun, I suppose, <laughs> for, for exploration. In line with this conversation we're having, I think sometimes maybe there's an assumption that you get to a point where you're fixed, mm. but that really it's a constant work on acceptance and that yeah. these emotions like you have now, you will 
potentially continue to have. Mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting that you bring up shame because I think that's actually a one that comes up a lot in the mm -hmm. conversations I have with my friends. I know it's mainly my friends who are going to be listening to this. So <laughs> I think it could be useful to have a conversation around the fact that there's a story from that shame mm -hmm. and that maybe the source of that shame, whether it be known or, you know, it could be potentially somehow trickling down from a traumatic incident that's somehow hidden in your subconscious but regardless the act itself might not be as dark or bad mm -hmm. as it, it feels and you know it brings back to the stories we tell ourselves and so I was just wondering you know how how in the context of how you evolved how did that mm -hmm. story about yourself change mm. yeah well I think it's still evolving. So I already feel my mind is going in so many different directions. Even just hearing that question, so I'm like, okay. Well, maybe we can take it for specifically to entrepreneurship. Yeah. Uh, when I think about entrepreneurship, someone who's really in touch with their feelings and is mm. willing to accept that full display of the human uh, emotional mm -hmm. spectrum really has a leg up on someone who isn't mm -hmm. because I think it it brings out those things and it can be destructive not to work through them yeah maybe in that context how has that story had to evolve for you yeah. to get to a better place oh yeah I think at the beginning of entre an entrepreneurial journey I think it's a certain level of unrealistic optimism <laughs> or confidence or arrogance is required you have to believe that your idea is going to work and you have to be so a hustler to go and make it work and wear a hundred hats. And I think for me, some of the evolution has been learning more and more where am I not able to do a certain thing? Where do I need to delegate and outsource and find the person who is better in that certain area? And I think in terms of my personal journey, every single day I'm learning something new about where my skill sets do lie versus don't. But I think in terms of like practical story sharing, um, when I was preparing to graduate from my social work master's, I was putting a tremendous amount of pressure on myself to figure out what was I going to do with my degree? What was my career? And who was I basically is at the core of, of that dilemma. And my well-being has given me this unique integration of both clinical and more macro-systemic change work. And at the core of my dilemma was feeling like I had to choose between those two. And I feel like it goes back to what I was saying before, of feeling like I had to fit into this bucket of I'm going to be a therapist or I'm going to change a system. And not giving myself the patience or opportunity or flexibility to say, well, maybe I can integrate both. And I think in terms of like failures and successes and a full range of emotions, something that's coming up for me is even just yesterday I learned uh, someone on my team who's an invaluable teammate um, has to move on to a full-time position elsewhere in the next couple of weeks. And we work extremely well together and have this very strong professional relationship. So when she told me, I started crying. And immediately I had, you know, the shame in the back of my mind pop up. I'm like, are you serious? You can't pass. This is not professional. This is not okay. What are you doing? And, in, you know, I, I noticed all this happening. And I looked at her and I was like, 
you know, I'm tempted to apologize for what's happening, but also, like, this is what's happening. (laughs) I was like, just, you know, I'm an open, but like this, I encourage others to really embrace and feel their feelings. So this, you know, Mm -hmm. even if most days this isn't the side of me that you see, this is the authentic reaction I'm having to I'm having to your leaving. So I want you to know, you know, I really appreciate the work that you've done with us. And I look for and I know we'll keep in touch. But it's things like that where I'm sure hundreds or thousands of people would say, oh, no, that, that you should never do that. Yeah. But then there are others who, you know, would say, wow, I can't believe, you know, I would never know what was my boss or manager actually thinking or feeling about my departure mm-hmm. and what a unique opportunity to have a more real conversation with someone about in a positive way everything that they've added to the team and everything that they can maybe then take off as a learning experience and and grow from you know what the past couple of months or past year really meant so this brings up uh something else which i was thinking about when i was reading your book which is a lot of the people you talk to uh descendants of people who are were somehow affected by the Holocaust. Mm. There was a lot of discussion of wanting to leave behind the victim identity. Mm. And um, notably because it, they were afraid that it would make people reticent to join Judaism if it was seen as a religion of people who um, were somehow victims. Mm. So, you know, I was wondering, what's your thought on how much of your victimhood or why you feel like you're being a victim should you keep Mm. how much is you know moral to keep how much should you be allowed to have Mm. versus how pragmatic it is to release it yeah I think for me and for perhaps others I feel as though I'm in a position of privilege more often than not I I am a woman but I also have a strong education and I happen I have access to others who can help leverage a certain mission or um so I think what what I hold as the victimization of my ancestors for me is more of a motivator to help others that may be either in a similar position or may feel marginalized or powerless so I feel as though I don't want to let go of my past. I actually want to channel it to try to pre- prevent future atrocities from happening. But in this case, on a very personal level, for me, you know, I went through a lot of obstacles with anxiety and depression in my adolescence through college. And I don't want anyone to feel alone in that. And I think one of the symptoms is you feel alone. It's clinically, that's part of it. So the more, you know, you feel, I don't know that I felt like a victim, but I did feel inherently flawed or like there was something wrong with me and that I had to hide it. And I think I, I, I think back on those feelings to try to understand what might someone really be feeling and going through and how can whether at my well-being or, or clinicians, how can we meet those people where they are without feeling like we're forcing them to change, without feeling like what they're feeling is not okay, but just opening the door and offering a hand that, you know, if you are ready for a little bit of support or if you are interested in opening up or unpacking some of what's going on, that here are the, the list of resources that you can 
start with. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to make this conversation like in some ways as practical as possible. Yeah. Just because I think a lot of the people who hear about therapy are somewhat reticent because it can seem like a little bit of a, you know, conceptual, not super grounded mm. notion. And um, I think as someone who's been through it, I don't know if last time we talked, I said I had had my concussion Mm. and, you know, that had been a really dark experience for me. And I think previous to that, I had probably been much more of a skeptic in the face of therapy than I am now. Uh, Now I I see it more as there's different levels of therapy that'll get you to different places. Mm. There's not one solution that'll fix everything, but, you know, there can be a good combination. But what 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 does it look like for someone who's had a traumatic experience in their life, you know, taken in it pot- potentially away from uh, a generational trauma mm-hmm. like the Holocaust and taken it to the individual? How does how does their relationship with the trauma change? How can it change? What does a positive relationship to trauma look like? Yeah. So I'll give three scenarios mm-hmm. because I think, you know, uh, they're like a blanket answer again, mm. like would be fantastic, but yeah. it's, it totally depends on yeah. the person and the specific trauma and where they are in their overcoming it or healing. So the most concrete, say if, if their recent experience say is keeping someone really bedridden, can't get out of bed, the most concrete work would be what are like small incentives and what are action steps that you can take to gradually spend a little bit more time out of it spend five minutes in the kitchen spend 10 minutes in the shower spend 15 minutes making you know like Mm -hmm. gradual baby steps until eventually you have still experienced this trauma you may not have talked about it at all or processed it at all but you are gaining more power and ownership over your day-to-day and then there's a a little bit more of a, a dynamic approach which is maybe, you know, you're going through the motions of your day-to-day, but the narrative of the trauma is repeating in your mind. There is completely distracting, completely disorienting. And you are ready to be in a relationship with a clinician where you can really grieve and you can really process what happened. Those sessions might look like you sitting and crying for 45 minutes for three weeks. And then in the fourth week, you start talking about what happened. Or might look like laying in the fetal position on the couch Mm -hmm. for a few you know it's it really is as unique as Mm -hmm. people needing to to find what works best for them and and there is a third bucket of there's more and more research that shows how mind-body integration can help have a cathartic effect for trauma that regardless of the trauma there are biophysical things that happen to your body and to your nervous system and to your endocrine system, and I think um, there are specific techniques that can help release some of that stress and reset your body physically that you could find yourself working with the clinician and going through some of those physical exercises to feel more grounded and less of that cyclical narrative on repeat in your mind that can happen with trauma specifically. And you can integrate more into your experience. So something that's very common with trauma is you might dissociate and you might 
feel is that you've completely blacked out what actually happened. You don't know, you don't remember, but you're feeling the physical ramifications like racing heartbeat or insomnia or no appetite or an over appetite. So a lot of these more mind-body integrations can help calm and ground some of that physical stress. And once the body's feeling more grounded, some of the narrative might actually start coming back up. And then you might find yourself in the more dynamic approach. Mm -hmm. So it is, there also is some of this like bouncing a little bit and seeing, you know, where are you in your journey at what time and what would be the most supportive for you at that particular moment and stage of, of your recovery. Yeah. It seems to me, you know, for this, um, for, for these type of recoveries to scale, mm. that second phase you mentioned, the three weeks of crying, um, requires, A, it's an extremely difficult experience mm. to go through. B, I think um, sometimes people would be reticent to go through that mm. because they judge their trauma to not be severe enough for the response that they're feeling. Mm -hmm. And so they think they're somehow being weak. And that, in fact, you know, the body contextualizes that experience in its own way. Mm -hmm. And so your rational mind on how severe or not that was really doesn't matter to how profoundly it can be affecting you. Mm -hmm. So you may have to go through an extremely difficult grieving process or, or re-experiencing process that doesn't feel correlated at all to the, to the strength of that situation which makes me feel like in some ways this conversation has to be expanded on a macro level mm -hmm. uh, to the way in which we think about, um, you know, being weak mm -hmm. or, or exhibiting signs of weakness like crying for mm -hmm. th three weeks. And that in some ways there has to be a level of acceptance uh, that you might do that regardless of whether or not society deems your tra your specific trauma to require that yeah. and so i feel like there's an acceptance there that you may feel in ways that is uncorrelated to what happened to you yeah, yeah. um so you know that brings me to a few other macro topics which mm. i wanted to discuss um i suppose the first one i'd like to talk about is you know the the with the shootings at the high school in florida mm. and um Kind of regardless of well, where you fell on the debate about gun control, one thing everyone seemed to agree with is that we have in this country a problem with mental health. Mm -hmm. And um, m my issue with that statement is that I feel like, like other things in politics, our human instinct is to want to have a kind of clear cut problem like oh it's about mental health because then we can feel like well as long as we fix that problem then we'll be okay mm -hmm. and so i kind of want to get your is there really a mental illness problem somehow significantly stronger than it's been in the past it, it, and what does it look like concretely if you know we do really have in this country at scale i'm not saying we don't yeah. i just like i'm in my cynicism i'm afraid that it's you know just a way in which we're like, oh, there's a problem. At some point, we'll deal with it. And, you know, this is a fixable issue. Yeah. I do think we have a mental health problem in this country. Um, I mean, the epidemic of depression and suicidality is going up, I think, in a large part for younger generations. Uh, technology can be both an asset and a tool, but also a point of comparison between self and other 
uh, that's much more pervasive than it was, you know, decades ago. I mean, for for my generation, social media and technology was definitely around, but starting probably in high school. So when you think about having that present from day one, it's it's hard to compare. You know, and you primarily see the best of what's happening for other people. So that that conditioning and that compulsion to fit into a mold and to be perfect is stronger and to be on all the time, not really taking a minute to turn off and refuel. Um, But I do think, you know, it's more than just saying there's a problem. And I think it would start with funneling significantly more resources into fixing it. For example, I'll, I'll speak to social workers specifically because it's the background that I'm the most familiar with. But Mental health clinicians in general are severely underpaid, particularly those working with populations that need the assistance the most. Insurance companies do not reimburse mental health clinicians a living wage, which causes a significant number of mental health clinicians to not be able to accept insurance because they can't pay their business expenses when they do, which leads a significant number of people who would be open and interested in therapy to not be able to afford it. And I think that's unacceptable. So in your mind, you know, how much should come from the public sector versus potentially platforms which ease a process like yours? What, what, what do you see being the balance between public and private to solving this issue? Yeah, I think um, it is a balance, right? And I kind of feel like it should be a priority and a focus at, in proportionally to the resources that people have. So my well-being is on a mission to help people at scale. But we're an early stage startup. So how mm. much how much resources and capital mm. and reach do we have versus the millions of followers that follow a celebrity who can mm. and many celebrities do endorse therapy. That's amazing. Ver- how much better if they, you know, make a donation to mm. uh, a free clinic that can offer therapy for free. Amazing. How much better if, you know, an insurance company really decides to to make it a priority and increase their reimbursement rates amazing um so i think there are a number of companies that are really trying to integrate mental health and and whole body mind and body resources to their staff i think that's important that's a big step so i do think it's this it's hard to say as a whole because the system is so segmented how much percent should come from where but I think for a significant percentage to come from each each actor and then for people to collaborate when they can is vital. It- is, I mean, you know, this might be, again, another cynical question, but <laughs> is uh, mental health not that profitable? Because it would seem to me that, you know, if it is such an epidemic, and again, this is coming from a place of, you know, a certain amount of lack of knowledge about actually the mechanics of the industry so Mm. you know please tell me if i'm wrong but if the problem is growing why you know why hasn't certain privatized companies tried to enter the market and really scale uh to solve this mental health health problem Mm. i think in the coming years there will be more attention paid to it by big players um I think, honestly, the notion of stigma that we've talked about a little bit has mm-hmm. prevented a lot of large-scale efforts because people, I, you know, over one in four adults in the U.S. experience some kind of mental illness, which also has 
a ripple effect for how many people experience mental illness that don't report it. So how much higher is that number actually? And even for people that don't experience it directly, if one in four people experience it directly, how many people have a mother, brother, sister, friend who has experienced it? So generally when people start talking about it, the narratives on an individual level come up to think about, oh, well, it's there are sometimes very heavy, very sad memories. And for more often than not, those experiences haven't really been adequately processed or digested. So it's a lot sexier to talk about things that, you know, are super high tech or are super money or you know, mm. there are there are other industries that are a lot easier to have conversations about than when you start talking about mental health, when yeah. you start talking, you know, you see it in other, but when you start talking about race, when people really start to retreat and f- it, they feel uncomfortable, they don't have the language to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So optimistically, I do think that's changing, but I think, you know, it would, I would be remiss not to say that that stigma isn't part of it. Okay. Well, thanks so much for taking the time with me. Yeah. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thanks again for having me. It was a pleasure.